Well, this is the second Sunday of our Ephesians series, so we are going through uh, the letter of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians was a letter uh, written by Paul to the church. You might also hear Ephesians referred to as an epistle. Uh, what is an epistle? An epistle, you can think of an epistle as a letter that teaches, and New Testament epistles, which are towards the back of your Bible, are letters that teach us more about God. Letters that teach us about God. Well, last Sunday, uh, we started with Ephesians uh, 1, 1 through 14, where Paul wrote a doxology praising God that those he was writing to had received every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those who have received every spiritual blessing in Christ are called, help me out with that word. I heard it from somebody. Saints, yes. Uh, if you have believed in the name of Jesus, and if you have given your life to him, then you are a saint. You're a saint not based on your good works, the works you have done, but in Christ in whom you have believed. And if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you also have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are, as I said last Sunday, signed, sealed, and delivered. Praise God. You say that with me. Praise God. Yeah. So last Sunday, we learned about blessings and praises. This Sunday, we're learning more about prayer. So our passage this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. It's a passage uh, about prayer. And I, and I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open to that passage or follow along. In your, it's uh, printed in your bulletin. Um, the passage is about two great themes that roll into one. The first being a powerful prayer and the second being the power of God. Now, the first part of our passage, Ephesians 1, 15 through 19, is a stunningly wonderful prayer that looks back on the blessings we've received, which I mentioned, uh, every spiritual blessing in Christ, and forward to who we will be, Christ's body, the fullness of him who, um, who fills everything in every way. And so this is a stunning blessing all to the glory of God. Now, the second half of our passage speaks of the power behind that prayer, the supremacy of Christ's amazing vision for the church. I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever felt like your prayers are pitiful and powerless? Paul urges us to pray that God will open our, the, our eyes to his power as we pray. God wants us to pray powerful prayers. And so here is your challenge this morning. I'd like that next slide here. I'd like to offer you the bug challenge. The picture above you is a praying mantis. Don't let an insect beat you at prayer. Your faith is greater than a bug. Just saying. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19 is a prayer that you can personalize for yourself or you can pray for other people. You can put your name in it or you can put somebody else's name in it and pray that prayer just as it is. But for the next few minutes, I'm going to take some principles out of this passage and share them with you to apply to our own prayers that we will come up with on our own at various times. And so, principle number one, we need to give thanks and remember. The passage is Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped 
giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What is principle number one? Just to see if you're awake. Yeah, give thanks and remember. That was half-hearted, but I'll take it. Um, Don't underestimate the power of giving thanks and remembering God's goodness. When we remember to give thanks for the evidence of faith and love in the lives of the saints, we are reminded in God's goodness and the goodness of God in others. So Paul begins his prayer referring back to this praise, his doxology in the first 14 verses, that those who are in Christ have been chosen, predestined, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, sealed, or as I said, signed, sealed, delivered. Paul gives thanks for the evidence of their faith in God and for the evidence of their love for the other saints. The faith and love of the saints confirm that they themselves have received these promises and are truly saints. And Paul's thanksgiving is not fleeting, it's continual. He continues to give thanks because he's remembering all these things. We need to remember and give thanks when we pray. Second principle is that we need to pray for one another to know God more. We need to pray that we will know God more, but we need to pray that one another will know God more as well. And who was Paul praying to? That's a really good question. At the root of the human problem is that we want to make God in our own image, not understand and know the God who made us in his image. Many of us in America pray to the Starbucks God. Really, we can customize this God to be any way we'd like him to be. I'd like a double cappuccino with a, I don't know even what they, I can't even order it properly, but you know what I'm talking about. You can, you can customize your God, and that's what people in America do. But we need to know who God really is. The name God revealed to Moses in the burning bush, Yahweh, uh, I am, I was, I will always be the eternally existent one who is omniscient, omnipotent. He's, he is uh, majestic over all that he has created. He is God over all that he's created, and he continues to sta- sustain all things by his hand. Through Christ, God the Father gives a spirit of wisdom and revelation in order that we might know him better, so it is God that opens our eyes. And believers need to pray for one another to know God more. Knowing God more is a blessing that takes place when the Spirit of God works on the Word of God, helping us to be wise and discerning about who God is. We need to pray for one another to know God more. And then prayer principle number three uh, we need to pray for the head and the heart. And you see the, the passage above you there. Um, just to make sure you're still awake and you can say this loudly, what is prayer principle number three? Pray for the head and the heart. In a conversation between Alistair McGrath and Donald Coggan, former Archbishop of Canterbury, the discussion turned to some challenges theological education, noting that some folk who learned about God seemingly did not care about God. They learned about him, but they didn't love him. At one point, Coggins sadly remarked, the journey from the head to the heart is one of the longest 
and most difficult that we know. For the Ephesians, Paul prayed that learning about God would not merely be an intellectual exercise. It can't just be the head. But that the eyes of their hearts might be opened, that their thoughts, affections, volition, and the identity of who they believe themselves to be would be caught up in what God had revealed through his Holy Spirit. This may come as a shock to you, but being born again does not give us new brain cells. It changes our allegiance and our affections. It changes our convictions. It's a volitional component. Therefore, we need to pray that God will help us to know him more cognitively and cardiactically. I just coined that last phrase. We must pray to know God with our heads and our hearts, or as Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, this is chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Hebrew professor said that word strength is actually all your oomph. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Pray for the head and the heart. Principle number four, pray for God to redefine hope, riches, and power. All right, saints, see if you're still awake. Pray for God to... Very good. All right, so we must have wisdom, the wisdom of God, imparted through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The wisdom should affect our heads and our hearts, but to what end? Paul mentions three, hope, riches, and power. Three areas we must pray for, that God wants to redefine in us our hope, riches, and power, our hope in Christ, who has redeemed, who has redeemed us and now sits at God's right hand, is that he is our treasure and we are his. Did you know and do you believe that God has called you to hope? Some of us in this room, no doubt, struggle with hope. Do we have hope? God has called you to have hope. Your calling is not only to believe in him, but to hope in him above all else. It's a hope that won't fail. Will we hope in God or will we hope in something else? If we define hope as the future fulfillment of our faith, then hope is predicated upon what we have trusted. Have we trusted something that will not fail us? Is the reason that we have no hope the fact that we have trusted in something other than God himself? Today, many trust in financial resources, possessions, relationships, government. I might add sports teams to this, weirdly. Um, and even the local church. But what is necessary is that we will trust in what will not fail us, which is God himself, the self-existent one, the creator, the one ultimate reality. He will not fail us, and in him we must have our hope. Here Paul commends trusting in the riches of our glorious inheritance, an inheritance that Jesus' disciple Peter says can never perish, spoil, or fade. How about riches? The riches of God's glorious inheritance is in his holy people, the saints. 
We are saints only by the blood of Christ. But when we become saints, not only is God our inheritance, we in some way are his. Rich are the lives of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, for they are caught up in the glory of God and in God's eternal purpose. Who is rich? Jeff Bezos? Bill Gates? Warren Buffett? The American dollar, the European euro, or the Chinese yun, did I pronounce that correctly? Will not buy much in heaven. Those currencies are best used investing in what will not perish, spoil, or fade. And how about power? Essential for all these things is power. What is the power behind our future hope and our riches that will not perish, spoil, or fade? That power is the same that accomplished two very great actions. The power that raised Christ from the dead, which includes us in these future blessings. So basically, that power broke the power of death over us and raised Christ above all things. Now, um, I'm going to pause. We have three more principles that uh, I'm going to inflict upon you, and I'm excited to do so. Um, but you might be wondering, um, you know, we sang that song, This Little Light of Mine, for a reason. And uh, I've walked across this room before with the lights off, and uh, you can't really see very well, and there are obstacles sometimes, depending upon how the room's set up, especially if it's, you know, things are changed. I'm not quite sure where things are. I'm trying to make it to that door over there, or vice versa. And I'll turn on the little light on my... Um, on my phone. You know, that little light on my phone isn't quite enough. It's enough to kind of keep me so I know what's directly in front of me, but I can't see very far with it. And when you think about your Christian light, you might think about it in the very same way. You might think that your light isn't very powerful. It's there, but it's not illuminating enough. And by yourself, it's just not significant in a world that's kind of dark. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to say a few more things about that, but I want to offer a testimony to you in that regard to the, the power of answered prayer. I'm going to invite my wife, Asha, to share that with you. You want me to stay up there? <laughs> All right, I'll stay with you. Okay, I have never done, uh, shared my testimony in church before, so first time, but um, when Cabot was preparing for the sermon today, or not today, but this week, I told him I have to share. I have to share the power of God's transforming word and the power of praying scripture. So I've spent lots of tears, so hopefully I won't be a puddle right now this week preparing, so. Okay, but... Um, it's hard to appreciate what God has done for Cabot and I. Um, so I want to share a little bit of our story. Uh, when Cabot and I met, um, we would have never guessed that he would be pastoring. That was We were as far from that as the east is from the west. 
Um, I have a Catholic background, and attending Mass was an important part of my weekly rhythm. Cabot had a nominal background, um, Protestant background, so we couldn't figure out what our faith, and we would go Sunday or Saturday nights to Mass and Sunday mornings um, to the local Protestant church. Um, and when we um, started talking about getting married, in God's providence, he directed us to an evangelical pastor who um, for premarital counseling. And Pastor Gary recommended that um, we learn what we believed. And the best way to do that was to get into a good Bible study. So he recommended um, Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. So after we got married, uh, we would begin to study God's Word systematically um, through BSF. And we did that for years. Um, but as I began to read God's Word, um, God began to open my eyes. And at one point, early on, I turned to Kevin and I said, okay, I know why we're struggling. I know why we're fighting. It's because we're sinners. And it was the first time that a glimpse of reality beyond myself broke in. Um, I could be kind, I could be fun, I could be compassionate, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there was this other side the side of where there was pride selfishness desire to be right all the time and anger anger tended to be my first emotion that I would go to when things didn't go my way. Of course, I was not alone in this. God brought two very stubborn people, strong-willed together. And so in our house, there would be many times of storm clouds and lightning bolts. But God, God in his compassion, walked into our broken reality. He showed me not only that all that ugly stuff was sinful, but my response to it of justifying myself, of blaming others, minimizing my sin, all of that was wrong. When I finally admitted that I was a sinner and that I desperately needed Christ to rescue me, I did not have a instantaneous deliverance. But what God did for me was that he loosened the shackles of sin that gripped my heart. And slowly I began the process of dying to self. It was killing me to give up my rights. But as I began to turn my back on sin, I slowly gained freedom. During these storms, I desperately clung to God's truth and his word and praying scripture was my lifeline. This passage that we read today is so meaningful to me. I did not know much, but I put my hope in the one who knew me. And I'd like to share with you the first prayers that I pray daily. For this reason, ever since I heard about Cabot's faith in the Lord Jesus and his love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for him, remembering him in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give Cabot the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that Cabot may know you better. I pray that the eyes of Cabot's heart may be enlightened in order that he may know the hope to which you called him, the riches of your glorious inheritance, your incomparably great power for us who believe. The fact that we are here ministering, that Cabot is pastoring, that our marriage is sweet and thriving is a testimony of God's power, the transforming power of his word, and the power of praying scripture. So what do I say after that? She took the Kleenex with her. Hmm. You know, I think one of the dangers that, uh, that Ash and I have is people look at us and think, you know, they've got it all together. And, uh, and I think that that's, you know, a lot of times people see that when they see us. And we don't have it all together, nor did we ever have it all together. But if you see any goodness in us, it is evidence of God's grace and a continuing journey towards Christ. And uh, I'm so thankful that Asha was willing to share all that with you because we did. We, we clung to God's word and uh, we trusted in him through difficult and dark times until God brought us hope. And uh, I know if you're struggling with that issue of hope, that God can be your hope through whatever you're going through. Principle number five, don't pray wimpy prayers. Remember God's resurrection power as you pray. Remember Christ's cosmic authority. We hope in Christ raised from the dead, given ultimate authority over everyone, everywhere, and for all time. When we pray, we must remember who we are praying to. The source of the power of our prayer is not in us. It is in the God to whom we are praying. Principle number six. Pray that Christ would be glorified in the church. He is our head, and we are his body. We are Christ's inheritance. Our riches are in Christ. Pray that we will live together, care for one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, and point each other to the riches that are in Christ. And finally, in your prayers, remember the fullness of Christ who has everything under his feet. The church as his body, fills everything in every way, politics, finance, relational struggles, things we worry about are under Christ's feet. Everything is under Christ's feet. The election coming up here, not that it's insignificant, but it's under Christ's feet. All of our struggles 
are also under Christ's feet. So pray, remembering that all things are resolved in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through this passage, and it talks about the immensity of God and how high Jesus is going to be elevated above all rulers and authorities and everything's under his feet. And then it talks about the church. I'm like, which one of these things is not like the others? Doesn't it seem like the church is puny in comparison with everything else that is being spoken of here? Doesn't it seem that way? And yet, in God's providence, he has huge plans for the church. What's the church? Well, one of the words for the church is gathering. And when we think of the church, we don't think of one person. Now, if you have a little light that's, not, that's shining in the darkness and it's not illuminating much, guess what? You're only part of the church. You're only part of Christ's body. And you need the rest of Christ's body to illuminate the room. When we had our Christmas Eve service here, we had some candles. And one candle wasn't very bright, but when we lit the room and everyone had their candle going, it was very bright. Maybe your candle only has 50 lumens. But if you put it together with everyone else, it's very powerful and very illuminating. But I think not only do we pray wimpy prayers, we um, sometimes live wimpy lives. And I like to use the story of Ephesus as a case in point for us, something that's very instructive since we're reading the letter written to the Ephesian church. Let's read about the background in Ephesus. Uh, the story is found in Acts 19. If you were to open your Bible to Acts 19, um, and incidentally, if you want to grab one, there's one in the back uh, there. But uh, Paul went to Ephesus. It says, while Paulus was, in, this is the beginning of Acts 19, while Paulus was in Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived in Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul's asking them, well, what baptism did you receive? They said, John's baptism. Now I'm going to pause right here just to bring us back to another passage that has everything to do with this. This is the application of Matthew 28 and Acts 19. What does Matthew 28 say? It's up on your screen there. Uh, if you can go to the next one. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority. Let's read it together just for fun. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Now, what did it say about baptizing there? Therefore, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was an inadequate baptism 
that had taken place for these Ephesians that Paul met. And he said, you have been baptized in the name of John. You have been baptized into the level of revelation God has given you, but let me tell you what that points to. That points to Jesus. And you should be baptized in the name of Jesus. And what happened? You can continue to read, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you have never been baptized. Some of you have been baptized as an infant. And I would just say, this is a command to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And every instance of baptism I've seen is the baptism of an adult who is able to understand what's taking place at that time. So the next thing that happened in verse 8, so this is Acts 19.8, is Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily um, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord baptizing them and teaching them all I have commanded. And Paul was just following the commandment in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Baptizing them and teaching them. And they're to be obedient in what they're taught. Well, the next thing that takes place is there's an there's a, um, altercation with the... Uh, um, some evil spirits, um, and someone tried to exercise these evil spirits um, in the name of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus, and it didn't go very well. They got beat up by this possessed person. And what people came to find out is you need to have a relationship with Christ to be calling upon Christ. You can't just say the name. When the word of all this got out, all the things that were taking place, the teaching, the people coming to Christ, being baptized, it dramatically affected the city of Ephesus. And one of the things that took place is there were a tremendous number of people that had these magic scrolls and scrolls that had certain things written on them and incantations and all sorts of things like that. And these scrolls were very valuable. The people took their scrolls and they burned them. Millions and millions of dollars worth of scrolls, and they burned them. The people's faith gave them a conviction great enough to walk away from that. Now, after the burning of the scrolls, uh, there was someone that was upset about the economic disruption caused by the Christians. And this is the passage you heard read today in Acts 19.23. It says, about this time, there arose a great disturbance of the way a silversmith named Demetrius, who made the silver shrines for Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Go figure. Um, there is a danger. He feels a danger. 
Not only will our trade lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And they had a riot. What was the riot caused by? Christians acting according to their convictions, and because the Christians acted according to their convictions, the economics of the situation changed. They burned scrolls worth millions of dollars. They weren't buying idols. And they were acting according to their beliefs. Brothers and sisters, what would happen if we acted according to our convictions? What would happen in this village, in this state, in this country, if all the Christians, those who believed in Jesus Christ, actually acted upon what they believed? Many things have been happening in this country, and the culture of Christianity is certainly, um, Christendom is certainly not uh, the predominant culture of the day. But what if we as Christians said, you know, um, all these things are going on on Sunday. And I'm doing them instead of church because I don't feel like I have any power. The culture is doing this. They're saying, we're going to have this sports event on Sunday or we're going to have whatever we're going to have. It's, 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 a, it's a myriad of different things, but one of the sins of our culture, one of the big struggles is we don't have a Sabbath. What we've done is we've taken the white space that used to be on the board and said, let's fill it. Let's fill it with our cell phones. Let's fill it with our devices. Let's fill it with activities. And we're busy, beyond busyness. And what has been the result of this? Greater incidences of depression, teen suicide, all sorts of problems that have happened as a result of us filling the white space that God says we need. That's why he took a seventh day and rested. And yet we think we know better. Or we feel that our light, or this little light of mine, is going to be extinguished in the vast sea of darkness of the culture. What if the Christians got together and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray about this. We don't even know what to do about this. But we're going to get together in numbers and pray about the problems of the culture. And we can feel ourselves being part of the church instead of a bunch of individuals that we will pray about it and say, I don't know where to even start here because this is not an easy thing. This is, this is the, the sea we swim in. So it's difficult to affect. But the Ephesians burn their scrolls. We're like, big deal. I would burn a magic scroll. But we don't have magic scrolls. We have something else that needs to be burned. We don't know what that is. They stopped buying idols. And we might ask ourselves, what is it that we need to do so that we live powerful lives, that we pray powerful prayers? And I think one of the things that we need to do is to get together as the church. It doesn't have to be in any official capacity. You find some brothers and sisters and say, let's pray about this. I think it's important. And maybe you're in the ball field wrestling through this very issue, and you find some other Christians there and start praying about it, what should we do? What would God have us do? 
Do you believe, and I, I want you to answer this, do you believe that God hears and answers our prayers? Yeah. Let's say it again. Do you believe God hears and answers our prayers? Then let's pray prayers that are significant, trusting that the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead will be in them, that God has given that to us, not only for the transformation of our lives, but for the transformation of the church and our community. Please bow your heads with me. Father, remembering the words of James, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call upon the elders of the church and pray over them, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to not only pray, but to be people that pray powerful prayers. They're not afraid to pray prayers that would shake our nation. You know the sins of omission and commission of the church, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to live lives in the power of the resurrected Christ, the cosmic Christ in whom all things will be resolved in heaven and earth. Help us to find our position with him as the church. Father, if anyone does not know Christ here, pray that you would give himself or herself to you. If anyone here needs to take that next step, whether it's baptism, learning more about you through teaching, or burning a magic scroll, Lord, whatever that might be, that you put it upon their heart. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been chosen, we've been redeemed, we've been sealed. Help us to live lives that reflect that. In the name of Christ, amen.